Well, as you know, we're in the middle of a series called We Believe. And one of the things that we've been going over is the Apostles' Creed. Now, in case you don't know what the Apostles' Creed is, that's pretty much a set of beliefs that the early Christians decided. Remember how we just sang, Jesus be at the center of the church? These early Christians said, we don't know what the future may hold. We don't know all the different things that people might say to try to steer people away. But we want to talk about what is the very core beliefs that's going to keep Jesus at the center of the church. So here, this creed is pretty much about 2,000 years old when you think about it. Even though it's called the Apostles' Creed, it wasn't written by the apostles themselves. It was the early Christians that attributed to the apostles because of everything that the apostles passed on. So within the first 200 years of Christianity, they developed the Apostles' Creed, which many of us know that a creed is pretty much a set of beliefs. So they developed the Apostles' Creed for us to be able to base our foundation on. Obviously, the Apostles' Creed is all based on the Bible, and any pretty much, for the most part, all the major aspects uh, when it comes to the denominations under Christianity point to the Apostles' Creed as being foundational in their faith. So for us, it's really important to know this um, the Apostles' Creed, and for us to be able to make sure that we keep it at the center of our faith as well. So something that we've been doing to kick things off, we've been doing it every week this month, is we're going to have everyone stand up to their feet. You can stretch a little bit if you have to. Maybe you've been sitting a little bit. If you could um, stand to your um, feet, and in the back of your bulletin, you will see the Apostles' Creed. And in case you don't have it, it should be behind me as well. Now, something I do want to say, this is written in traditional English, not in modern English. That's why there's a couple words you're like, what is that? What might that mean? Or, uh, you know what I mean, like the old English type. But we're going to read it together. It's going to be in the back, hopefully. Do we have it? Okay, cool. One, two, three. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. You did a great job. If everyone could be seated. Now, I want to highlight a couple key things. Like there, it says the Holy Catholic Church. Whenever it's a little c, that means the universal Christian church, not the Roman Catholic Church. Because sometimes people might say, hey, you know, like, um, like what's the difference? When it's a little c, is the universal church as a whole. And today, the major part that we're going to be focusing on, and I'm going to go into this a little bit afterwards, is he ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. The quick and the dead. So some of us might think it's like, hey, if you're slow, you're good. He's only here to judge the quick and the dead. No, quick means alive. So if you're reading a King James Version Bible, it says the quick and the dead. Uh, you know, if you're reading an NIV, it says uh, um, the alive and the dead. So that's just to show you a little bit of the different. I want to ask you, what is your favorite movie of all time? 
I want you to shout it out as loud as you can. One, two, three. Okay, I, I, I think I might have gotten um, a couple of them. Uh, when you think of your favorite movie of all time, it's like I know without question there's certain parts that you know are, to you it's pivotal. It's like in this movie, this is a pivotal part that you'll never forget. If it's your favorite movie, you might really love the beginning, maybe the middle, maybe the end, every part of it. Or maybe there's specific things that you highlight that means the most to you because it's special to you. Um, and I know, how many of you guys are big movie people? You love the movies. Uh, watching movies. Maybe not going to it's too expensive to go to the movies. All right, watching at home. Netflix. You love Netflix. All right, some of you. I just want to let you know my wife absolutely loves Netflix. I think she could go through two or three movies a night easily. I'm like snoring on the couch on one side, and then she's on the other couch. She's on her third movie. She loves Netflix. But I want to I wanna ask you real quick. I'm just curious if you would even know. What is the most watched movies ever? I'm going to give you the top five just for you to have an idea. Maybe in your mind you could think of a couple. See if you could even get any of these. Number one, most watched movie ever, ever. Titanic. All right. Most watched ever. So, some of you try to reenact uh, the whole Titanic. I saw you wearing Ankle Park in the middle of the lake, like trying to be in the boat thing. All right, number two actually came to a shocker to me. Number two is a movie that I saw in this theater when I was like probably like in fourth grade or third grade. My dad came. That wasn't that long ago. Uh, my dad brought me here to see it. It was E.T., Number, did someone guess E.T.? Oh, all right. Number three, The Wizard of Oz. Number four, Star Wars, Episode Four, A New Hope. Okay, a couple of Star Wars fans here. And number five, most watched movie ever, The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. Okay. Now, what's interesting, there's a difference between the most watched movie and what's considered the greatest movies of all time, okay? Now, I'm going to give you the greatest movies of all time. According to statistics, everyone has their own opinion. You might be like, I don't agree with that. Don't throw any tomatoes at me, all right? If you want to throw mangoes, I'll catch them and eat them. But don't throw tomatoes, all right? All right, number one, The Godfather. Number one, and we know New Jersey is a little bit my feel, so you know, they, they might like stuff like that. All right, number two, Shawshank Redemption. Okay. Number three, Schindler's List. Number four, Raging Bull. And number five, Casablanca. How many of you agree with any of those five? Raise your hand. All right, all right, we got some of you. Some of you guys like, no, man, my favorite movie is the Teletubby movie or something. I don't even know if they have a movie. But some, some of you probably have to uh, catch up on some of those greatest ones. But what's amazing is here we have movies, and we are obviously, there might be different reasons why we might love our movie. But we talk about, of course, in the church, about the greatest story ever told. It's the greatest story. It's the greatest true story that's ever told. It's the story of Jesus. And with us, that's a story that every single Sunday, you could say, throughout the entire world is being shared and talked about. And what's amazing is that for each of us, and even everyone that's watching through the live stream right now, we have our favorite parts of Jesus in the story, you could say, of what we know about Jesus. For example, for some of us, our favorite pivotal moment of Jesus' story is when he was born, 
during Christmas time. You absolutely love celebrating that Jesus came. God, the Father, sent Jesus to the earth as a little baby. And to you, that is the most important thing because that's what you've been highlighting. Some of us might highlight just Jesus' life as he was walking on the earth. All the miracles is something that touches your heart so much and all his teachings. For others, it might be just the thought that he died on the cross for us. Just the scene of the cross is what we highlight as pivotal and of course, Good Friday is a Friday that you don't never want to miss. And you want to be able to highlight what Jesus did for each of our sins. Now, for some of us, of course, we celebrate Easter. Most Christians in the world, maybe that's the Sunday everyone comes. And many of you know this church is completely packed on Easter Sunday. Because Resurrection Sunday, Jesus rose from the dead and everybody wants to celebrate, and of course, that's another pivotal moment. But the story doesn't end there. For a lot of Christians, the story of Jesus, the greatest story of ever, that was ever told, and is being told, is pretty much Jesus came as a baby, he lived sinlessly, doing miracles and touching people's lives, he died and he rose again, and that's it. Like, we don't really talk really much about anything else afterwards. But one of the major things that many Christians sometimes forget about the story, think about it, how we were talking about movies before. It's like, you know, you know every part is really important. In every great movie, you can't say, well, we could take this away or that away. No, every single part of the movie is crucial to tell the story the way it's supposed to be, to keep everything at the center. And to keep Jesus at the center, it's crucial that we know that the greatest true story ever told, that we would know all the parts to the story. Because after Jesus rose from the dead, and many times we, we, we don't realize this too. So, well, it, obviously, if you come to church throughout the entire year, you might realize Sunday, the Resurrection Sunday, church is completely packed. The Sunday afterwards, it's a regular Sunday. It's like, where did everybody go? You know, Jesus is still alive. The story continues. There's so much that has happened. And, of course, with Jesus, that's what happened. When he resurrected, it didn't end. He walked the earth for 40 days, appearing to the disciples, making himself known to everyone that believed. And we're going to take it up from there. In Acts chapter 1, verse 3, you would be able to see there, it says this. After his suffering... He presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So here it uh, pretty much highlights that after Jesus rose from the dead, he walked the earth for 40 days. And what did he talk about? What was the main thing he was talking about? We just read it. It should have been behind me. The kingdom of God. He was talking about the kingdom of God. He wasn't highlighting, like, hey, guys, when you go back to your churches, just do a big deal about Christmas, right? And just focus about Christmas. He didn't just talk about, hey, just focus uh, pretty much on, on w the fact that I died or that I rose again. No, he had another main message that he wanted all of us to know as well that's crucial as part of the story is the kingdom of God. And what is the kingdom of God? Really, it's when it comes, it's God's dominion. That, he, that God is king and he has reign over everything. And he wants to extend his reign into our hearts and throughout the entire world. And now something that we're going to clearly see too in the Apostles' Creed, it says, He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. 
Here we're going to um, read the two key passages so that we could see this. That after he walked the earth for 40 days, he ascended into heaven and he went to the right hand of Father God. In Mark chapter 16, starting at verse 19, it says this. And both of these passages are talking about the same event. But you'll see different things highlighted in them. In Mark 16, 19 to 20, it says this. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and he sat at the right hand of God. Then the the disciples went out and preached everywhere. And the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. In Acts chapter 1, verses 8 through 11, it says this. But you will receive power, Jesus Jesus speaking, when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from um, their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as if he was going. When suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Now, something you need to realize, when someone is at the right hand, he pretty much um, has equal dignity equal authority, and for us to realize also equal authority. So for them to say that Jesus went to the right hand of Father God, he pretty much saying, hey, he is reigning. Now, why is that important for us to know too? It's because for some Christians, when they look at Jesus, it's always thinking of Jesus just on the cross. As if not, like in a sense, it's like looking at Jesus in weakness, you know, on the cross, like pretty much with the nails through his hands and feet. And of course, we know that's the price he paid, but that's not the picture of Jesus right now. Jesus at this moment is sitting at the right hand of Father God with spreading his dominion and reign throughout the entire world. You know, in no way, shape, or form is he like, like, when, when you think about it, when I said that before, when you look at Jesus on the cross, obviously it appears like he's weak, but we know he's not. We know that he had the authority to ask the angels to remove him if he wanted to, but he chose to go down that path for each of us. But right now, this moment, the Jesus that we serve, he's sitting in power in authority. Now, for us, When we pray, do we realize the authority that Jesus has, the place that he has in heaven, and the the things that he wants to do in each of our lives? In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17, the Apostle Paul gives us a glimpse of what, where, where Jesus is when it comes to the authority and power that he has. It says this, the Apostle Paul is speaking. It says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Now, the Apostle Paul is praying this, and I believe he's praying this for each of us as well. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you the riches of the glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. The power is the same as the mighty strength, the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. 
And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who, who fills everything in every way. So here you see where Jesus is. And obviously, when we look at the Apostles' Creed and we think of the main things we highlight about Jesus' life, sometimes we don't highlight the fact that he's sitting on the right hand of Father God, that he's sitting as a king. He's sitting in all power and all authority and all dominion. And for us, when we approach him and to talk, talk to him and to pray to him, we need to realize that this is the God of miracles, this is the God that can make a way out of no way. He, this is the God that could deliver you from anything that you might be going through. This is the God that could set you free from chains that have been tormenting you for years, for decades. This is the God that could speak to you when you feel like you're completely lost and you need direction. This is the God that could provide for you when you feel like there's no one else providing for you. This is the God that sees everything when you feel as though you're completely alone in darkness that no one understands what you're going through. This is the God that knows everything about your life and is able to move powerfully, obviously, if it's according to his will. So for us, when we approach God, we need to realize we're approaching a king. It's not we're approaching pretty much a genie in a lamp that pretty much we just come to him just to ask for certain wishes or prayers whenever we might want something. You know, we're not approaching like just a God that's distant and like, you know, we could just come to him whenever we want to type of thing. We're approaching a king, a king that deserves all of our respect, a king that deserves all of our honor, a king that deserves us to submit to his will, a king that deserves for us to obey and follow with all of our heart, mind, and soul, a king that deserves every aspect of our life, even when we don't want to follow him, we choose to follow him. I wonder even at this moment, if Jesus is the king of your heart? Or is he just the savior on the cross? Or maybe he's just pretty much um, Jesus that was resurrected on Easter Sunday. You, you celebrate him as the resurrection, but you don't want to see him as king of your heart and life. Remember, when he was walking this earth for 40 days, he was talking about his kingdom. God's kingdom being spread everywhere. And so many times we wonder, what is God's will? What's God's will for my life? Is for you to make him king. King of your heart. King of your family. King in your workplace. King in your city. King in your state. King in the world. Make Jesus king. But it starts in your own heart. And you're the only one that can make that happen. No one else could do that. Now, in the Apostles' Creed, after that part where we highlight that he was, sit, um, he, he was seated in the right hand of Father God, it says, From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. What does quick mean? Alive. So pretty much says from there he's going to come to judge the quick, the alive, and the dead. Do you think that's a part that's highlighted a lot in the greatest story ever told of Jesus? That he's going to come to judge those that are alive and dead. Not only is he king seated on the right hand of Father God, He's going to come also to judge as well. And that's really something that is not really said too much, not celebrated too much. I could almost guarantee 
in your own personal greatest story ever told of Jesus, that's not something that you look forward to. It's like, Jesus, you're going to judge me. It's like, I don't think we necessarily want to cheer for that, you could say. But we even read that we believe. Center, keeping Jesus at the center of the church. This is a reality that's going to happen. And what's interesting, too, that everything that we've read so far of the Apostles' Creed has already happened. Now we're stepping into a part that's to happen. It hasn't happened yet. But we're saying we believe, according to the, the tradition of Christianity and God's word, of course, that this will come one day. And now for us, where does that leave us? So before we go a little further in this, I want to do a little test to see. To see how good your farming uh, skills are. Well, not, not necessarily farming, but you'll get what I mean. We're going to see if you could tell the difference between a goat and a sheep, okay? How many of you think you can? Raise your hand. All right. Some of you guys, even though you, you live in Elizabeth, you think you're good, right? You haven't seen a goat and a sheep in a very long time, but you think you're good. Or maybe you thought it was a goat and a sheep. They were just walking through Broad Street, and you might have thought, be like, yo, what's that? <laughs> All right, we're going to test it. The first one is that one. Is that a goat or a sheep? These are babies. I, I know some of you want to take these home with you. All right? How many of you think it's a goat? Raise your hand. How many of you think it's a sheep? All right, that one is a goat right there. Yeah, so, all right, let's see. The second one, all right, right there. How many of you think it's a sheep? Raise your hand. How many of you think it's a goat? Raise your hand. How many of you think it's a chupacabra? Raise your hand. All right, all right. All right, this one is a goat. Is a goat. It's a cute little one, too. All right, we're going to go to the third one. Oh, look at that little cute one. He's like, bah. All right, how many of you think it's a sheep? All right, goat. Chupacabra. No, no, I'm joking. All right, ready? That one is a sheep right there. All right, we have two more for you. The next one. How many of you think it's a sheep? Raise your hand. How many of you think it's a goat? That little one staring right at you. And some of you are just getting hungry. I'm making you hungry. Like, yo, Carlos, I was good up to this moment. Yo quiero comer chivo. You know what I mean? Right there, that's a goat. That's a goat. And last but not least, number four. Look at that one. So cute. All right. How many of you sheep? Some of you just don't want to vote no more. Some of you are like, yo, I've got. How many of you have gotten all of them wrong? All right. I should have made this like a little easier for you or something. But all right. How many of you think it's a sheep? Goat. How many, how many of you are just scared to raise your hand? Is that, you know what, Carlos? I, I'm confused. Right there, that's a sheep. That's a sheep. So the thing is, some of us feel as though we know what they look like uh, a lot before because in the United States, the way they breed them, they do make them very distinguishable. But in reality, in Africa and Asia up to this day and in biblical times, you really couldn't tell the difference between the two. You know what I mean? Really, it, it's, it's only someone, a shepherd, that really knows them by their behavior, by how they act, is able to distinguish between the sheep and the goat. So pretty much the shepherd's only able to do it mainly through the behavior that they have. But nowadays, like, you know what I mean? Like, even for us, if, if this was the case, if you were in Africa and Asia, we wouldn't be able to guess what it is. Now, something that we need to realize, too, with this 
the, obviously there's difference, uh, differences between the sheep and the goat, but the major difference is that the goat is rebellious. The goat doesn't want to do anything the shepherd wants him to do. The goat wants to do it his way or her way or the highway. You know what I mean? Now the sheep listens to the shepherd, follows the shepherd's voice, obeys the shepherd. So that's the major difference between the sheep and the goat. And here, when we think about the fact that God's going to judge us, okay, like one of the major parables or stories that Jesus gave was in Matthew 25, verse 31 to 46, and we're going to read that now. It says this. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with them, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous, the sheep on the right, will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. So here we're just going to take a little pause. You clearly see God highlighting the behavior of the sheep. And now I want you to know that Obviously, salvation is a gift from God. We're saved by grace, not by works, but our works is evidence of the grace that we've received. So when Jesus is truly in your heart and Jesus truly is the king of your life, the evidence of your actions should point to it. And this is what Jesus is saying. It's like, hey, when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When, uh, when I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was sick, you came to visit me. Like, when I was in prison, you came to visit me. Like, you know what I mean? Like, he highlighted the different actions that the sheep did and highlighted the fact is like, this is evidence that you're truly my child. This is evidence that you're doing my will. This is evidence that you're advancing God's kingdom. This is evidence that I'm king of your heart. This is evidence that's not talking about knowing God, it's really living God. So for us, we need to realize it's like, it's like, in what, what is our behavior really pointing towards? Is our life evidence that Jesus is king of our heart? Could someone, without you ever reading a Bible verse or even mentioning that you know God or anything like that, if, could someone look at your life just through your actions and see proof that Jesus is there? Could they? Because this is what Jesus is highlighting. Hey, here are the sheep coming to my right. There's evidence in their life that I'm king in their life. And then, of course, it continues because now he starts talking about those that are going to be to his left. Then it says this, and starting in verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. 
For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger or needing clothes, or sick or in prison, and did not help you? In verse 45, Jesus said, he will reply, um, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, for, but the righteous to eternal life. So here, something I want to highlight too is pretty much the eternal fire was prepared for the devils, and the, the devil and the angels that followed him. And in reality, it wasn't prepared for us. And God wants all of us to follow him and to be with him in heaven. But he's a just God. And there's consequences to our actions and decisions. And of course, we know that the devil himself, he rebelled against God. And when you think about it, it's like when we choose rebellion to oppose God, we pretty much start living in the footsteps that Satan himself paved. And there's nothing more that the enemy would want than to roll the red carpet down for us to follow his lead, to be rebellious, and to turn away from God. Now, this is the thing that we need to realize is that it's easy for us to have pretty much, you could say like an outer appearance of Christianity and for it not to be at the center of our heart. We could easily have an outer appearance of knowing God. We know about him. Maybe we were raised in church or maybe we go to church now once in a while or every, every Sunday. Outer appearance, but it's very shallow. And deep in your heart, the motivation of your heart is default and leaning on rebellion. And you know what? It's dangerous because in a group like this, it's like we all look the same, you could say spiritually, but God, when he steps in as a shepherd, the same way goats and sheep look the same and it was hard for you to tell the difference, you know, it's hard for us to tell the difference among ourselves with the people that we know, you could say, but God, the shepherd, the great shepherd, is able to step in and he's able to know who are truly the sheep and who's truly the goats. And I don't know where you stand. I don't know if you would be on the right or on the left. Only you're the only one that could answer that. Now, something I do have to say is this that we could easily, we could easily in our heart, because of our sinful nature, have a default to choose rebellion. No one likes to do what someone else tells us to do. No one really likes to do it. You know, in our hearts, we, we want to lean on being rebellious. But the problem is that if we have a rebellious heart in general, I'm not even talking about your relationship with God. In general, if your heart tends to be on the rebellious side, there's a greater likelihood that you will translate that rebellious type of attitude and personality towards God himself. Now, what I'm going to do now, we're going to do a little test. And I'm going to ask you 10 questions and the questions are going to be behind me if you want on the bulletin in the back you could write yes or no you could put one through ten and you could take notes if you want or mentally you can but with these questions what we're going to highlight is pretty much it's like trying to see if we tend to be rebellious in one way or another so the first question is this, and I want you to be honest. You don't have to share this with anyone else. 
You know what I mean? If you don't if why you don't have to write it down if you want to keep it in your ho- own heart and mind. The first question is this. Are you quick to criticize and complain? Are you the type of person that's quick to criticize and complain? Usually people that are quick to criticize and complain tend to be rebellious because they're criticizing and complaining about things that are not going according to the way they want it. It's around them, but you know what? It's like they want to give their opinion out and quickly say, I don't agree with that. They should do it this way or that way. It's like, why do I have to even go through that? Why are they making me do this? You know what I mean? It's it's like you're, you're quick to complain and criticize, but when it boils down to it and you look at your heart, is it rebellion? Is it because all of a sudden the people that are over you or around you, whatever it is, your boss or maybe a leader in the church or or whatever it is, you're quick to give your opinion. And you know what's crazy is a lot of times we give our opinion because you're trying to win other people over to side with you. That's the real reason a lot of times we criticize and complain. It's like we say it. So that the other person could be like, oh, yes. And then deep in your heart, you're like, yes, I got one. Like, you know what I mean? It's like one by one, you fuel yourself just wanting to criticize and complain. When in reality, there's something deeper wrong within our hearts. And it's really rebellion against what God might be doing in our very own lives. Number two, the next question, I kind of mentioned it before. Is it your way or the highway? Now, even that, that might seem a little comical. But when you think about it, when it comes to your life, is when you live your life dealing with your spouse, dealing with your children, dealing with, you know what I mean? Like, whatever it may be, do you sometimes literally without allowing any type of discussion at all or any reasoning or gathering any wisdom or guidance from anyone, you, put, you pretty much fix your feet on the ground and you don't budge. And deep down inside, you know you could be wrong. It's like deep down inside, you know, and everyone around you, you're like, yo, he's wrong or she's wrong, but they don't budge. It's like they do not budge because they're fixed in their opinion of wanting what they want, and that's it. And if you could write, you have to write yes or no for that one. Number three is this. Is it hard for you to say I'm sorry? Is it hard for you to say I'm sorry? Like, for a person that doesn't like to say I'm sorry when they did something wrong to someone else, that's a form of rebellion. It's like, I'm not going to apologize. You know you're wrong, but you don't want to give anyone the pleasure of you admitting that you're wrong publicly, voicing it out, and letting that person know that you agree with them that you're wrong. You rather stay completely quiet, walk away, do whatever you want to do, and then go back as if nothing happened. Some of us know some of these people in our lives. And if we're not laughing too much, it's because it's you. <laughs> like, like, you know what I mean? It's like, man, he's talking about me. No, no. It's, it's like, when you think about it, it's like we don't like it. But why is that? Number four, do you tend to say no or ignore God? When you know God has been nudging your heart to come back home. God's been telling you you've been away from him way too long. But we're quick to say, you know, no. I'd rather do what I want to do than follow you. Or we ignore what God is doing. God's challenging you to be involved in ministry. Even today is the last day we highlighted to be part of the ministry team for this new ministry year. 
but we just ignore it. God knocking at the door of our hearts, we're like, you know what? No, I'm not ready. Do you really think any of us, we were ready when we decided to first get involved in helping out? None of us were ready, and the reality is we're all growing in this journey and learning. So it's like that's not an excuse of why not stepping in and ignoring the knock that God's doing within our hearts. All right, number five, do you resist those in authority in your life? Do you resist it? Like, whoever's in authority in your life, you automatically don't like them. For some reason, it's like, you know what? I hate my boss. He's kind of nice, but I still hate him. Like, you know what I mean? It's like, why? Why do you hate your boss? It's just because he's my boss. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like if you feel like your heart is so inclined to resist authority. It's like the moment you might even see a police officer, it's like all of a sudden, it's like you, you, you feel a certain way towards them, and we forget they're human, they're husbands, you know, they're wives, they have children, they're, they, they, they have chosen a profession to lay their lives down to protect us. But yet, for some reason, for some of us that might not like authority, whether it's a police officer, a boss, or like a leader in the church, or whatever it is, we want to resist. And that resistance stems from being rebellious. So would that be something that you could write yes to? Number six, do you always look for shortcuts? Do you always look for shortcuts? You know why that's a po that, that points to rebellion? It's because you don't want, you want to do things your way and not the way it's supposed to be done. So do you always look for shortcuts? Your boss tells you to do something or whoever your parents tell you to do something and you always try to find shortcuts or whatever it is. If your life is all about shortcuts, it's because you want to do things your way and that's it. You don't want to follow the process. You don't want to follow the journey. You want things expedited for you because you just believe you deserve it. But that's being rebellious. That's like, no, I don't want to do this this way. I want to do it my way. I want to find shortcuts, do whatever I have to do to get to where I want to go. Forget the fact that God is God. And, and if we submit to him, even when we're in a journey that seems dark and confusing, there's a process the, be, being taken place to elevate you to a position that he wants you to be at. Just look at the life of Joseph, the journey that he was on, but yet he was obedient to God through the entire journey. Number seven, we only have four more questions. Do you tend to gossip about others? Do you tend to always talk about others? Instead of saying things of blessing, all you're saying is cursing other people. You know, if that's the case, like, you know what I mean? Like, you're trying to be in some ways controlling, some ways trying to throw your own rebellious view of the person to, upon other people as well. And gossip, honestly, gossip is, is, is a dangerous fuel that honestly the only person that really gets destroyed in it mainly is yourself, the gossiper. Obviously, it, it has an effect with the people you share it to, but you think it doesn't affect you, it affects you as well. Three more questions. Number eight, do you help others only when it doesn't inconvenience you? Do you help others only when it doesn't inconvenience you? Now think about the passage that, you know, we highlighted of Jesus, of all the things Jesus did. You know, obviously we, we could be here and be like, you know what, I could do those things too. But what if it inconvenienced you? What if you're like driving and you see an opportunity, but Dunkin' Donuts is a block away and you've been craving that latte? Some of us would rather get that latte instead of helping the person that's on the side of the road 
that you know God told you to stop by and help. You know, when you think about it, it's like, it's like how many of us, if we're walking through the street, even if we see someone to the side that might greet us, and maybe their intentions is to ask for money or this or that, we all experience stuff like that. But we choose not even to be cordial, loving, respectful, sharing a kind word, maybe a prayer to them, but we choose to ignore them, not even make eye contact, keep walking because you don't want to be inconvenienced by that moment that might just take about 30 seconds, but we rather be seen as the mean, like, Christian that just came out of church. <laughs> like, hey, Sunday, you're, you're, you might be holding your Bible, but you're walking through, and you don't want to be bothered. And for each of us, we need to, we need to know, like, I, I'll never forget there was a story. There was a story that, that like, I, I heard once of a new pastor that came to a church. And when the new pastor was assigned to the church, he wanted to see how the health of the church was, like pretty much people's hearts. And what he decided to do was to dress like a homeless man and to sit outside of the church during the whole morning as the whole church was coming in. And one after another, people would walk past and not even say hello not even high, not even acknowledge him, not even a head, like, bowing bow their head a little bit, just walked past them, and everyone came in here to sing songs and celebrate, sing songs of Jesus, how he died on the cross, sing songs of Jesus, how he resurrected, but not too much about how Jesus is king spreading his dominion and doing it through our lives, you could say. And to the whole church's surprise, the homeless man who they thought was homeless comes out being introduced as the new pastor of the church. And he stands in front of the whole church and pretty much reveals that it was him sitting outside the whole time. Now, when you think about that, it's very easy for us to, f to have religion but no relationship with God. Because if you truly have a relationship with God, your heart will beat with God's heart. And what moves God's heart will move your heart. What breaks God's heart will break your, uh, your heart, heart as well. You know, what makes God's heart excited will make your heart excited as well. When God moves, you moves. You move as well. So it's about having a relationship with God, not religion. And here we see how we could easily have a form of Christianity when it's really religion we're following instead of a living relationship with a God that's sitting on the right hand of Father God, reigning, and that we need to obey. Number nine, do you do the bare minimum at work? just to get by. You don't go above and beyond. You do things according to what you want. And number 10, do you follow God according to your own terms? I know, obviously, we're all here today because we love God. But do we love God just for what he could do for us? What if God doesn't give you any more blessings for the rest of your life? Would you still follow him? Would you, or do we really follow a blessing? Are we chasing after what the hand of God could do rather than God's heart? Is it more important for us to receive things from God than to know his heart? Is it more important for us to really just feel like we're safe in a sense? Because sometimes we come to church or we open the Bible, or we talk to God mainly because we almost want to check it off the list. 
we have a to-do list of things we have to do during the week. And it was like, oh, we have to go to church too. We check it off. Just in case, you know, that might make a difference. Like, you know, the day that our time is up. And let me tell you, life is so short. Like even yesterday I found out, like uh, someone that we knew a long time ago that was part of our church uh, passed away. Young, uh, in her 40s. And life is so, so short. And we just chase after so many wrong things instead of doing what God wants us to do. Are we following God according to our own terms? It's like, God, you know, I'll follow you. I'll go to church on Sunday. You know, I'll pray to you once in a while. Like, I'll talk to the kids about you. But that's pretty much the extent of what I'm going to do. Or do you follow God according to the fact that he's king? That he's king. It's like, you know what? It's like, I'm going to follow and obey you no matter where you lead me. No matter where you might take me. No matter what you might ask from my life. No matter where you might bring or no matter the storms that might happen in my life, I'm always going to follow. Right now, if everyone could bow their heads, this now is really a time of repentance. It's a time of coming back home. It's a time of standing before the throne of God and saying, God, please forgive me for not having you at the center of my life. Please forgive me for chasing after so many other things, thinking that it's going to satisfy instead of chasing after you. Please forgive me for following you according to my terms and not yours. If you know that you're here in this room, but you need to give your heart and life to God and put him at the center. I'm not questioning if you know him or know about him. I'm just saying that you know that today you want to commit him as the king of your life. You don't want to question if you're a sheep or a goat with rebellious tendencies. You want to know that you're a sheep following the Lord's and shepherd's voice wherever he might take you. So if that's you, that you just want to surrender everything to King Jesus and put him at the center. I want you to stand to your feet wherever you're at here in the room. With every eye closed, every head bowed, this is between you and God. Making that commitment, telling God, it's like, God, I want you at the center. I want you to be king of my life. Please forgive me for all the things I've done for following you according to my terms. And even now, if he's knocking on your heart, stand. It could even be a test of being rebellious, even at this moment. We might resist it, be like, God, no, no. But if you know that you're not right with God, this is the moment to surrender and stand. So I'm going to give you a moment now for everyone that's here, whether you're sitting or standing, just to talk to God right now. You could ask him for forgiveness. You could ask him to come and be at the center of your heart. He's listening to your voice. Jesus, we ask you to be at the very center of our heart. We sit you on the throne of our heart and we proclaim that you're king of our lives. You are the voice that we listen to. You're the voice that we bow down to. You're the voice that we will follow. Jesus, show us and reveal to us when we're starting to stray. Reveal to us when there's other voices or things trying to compete. We just want to keep you at the very center. 
Jesus, we're going to follow you according to your terms. We want to be sheep in your fold, God. We realize that you're king, and one day you will judge us all. But God, when that day comes, we want to be confident that we will be on the right side with the sheep, knowing that we listened to you while we walked on this earth. We obeyed you. We advanced your kingdom and your will. Forgive us for just highlighting the part of the stories of your life that are personal just to us and maybe selfish to us in some ways. But God, we want to do what you've called us to do. In Jesus' mighty name, we commit to you our hearts. We commit to you our lives. We commit to you our dreams. We commit to you our goals. We commit to you our families. We commit to you our workplaces. We commit to you our neighborhoods, our city, our state, this country and world, God. We just surrender every aspect of our lives into your hands. And may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In your name we pray, in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. God bless you. Before you leave, say hi to someone that you do not know. Because we're a big family here in Christ Fellowship.